Well, today is the final Sunday of Passion Week, a week that puts an appropriate spotlight on what Paul says is of first importance. That's the exact phrase used in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So take your Bibles and open them to 1 Corinthians 15. That's the chapter where we've been rooting all of our messages during Passion Week this year. And as you turn there, let's ask this question, what is of first importance? Well, Paul says plainly in the opening verses that the gospel is of first importance. It's the priority matter. And so we're aiming this week to look at two biblical concepts. When I say this week, meaning Passion Week, the two bookend Sundays, we're aiming to look at two biblical concepts, two biblical principles about the gospel. Last week, Travis looked at gospel content. This week, I'll look at gospel contact. These are the two primary principles about the gospel that come to us in this section of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. Now, let's just keep reviewing for a bit more. When we say gospel content, and I'll just review some things Travis said to you last week, we mean the historical evidential truth that Jesus, the Son of God, actually lived, died, and was raised from the dead as the only way for us to be saved from our sins. It's a body of truth. It is real. It's actual. It's factual. It's historical. These are the core truths of the gospel. And yes, one of them is Christ's resurrection, which is what we celebrate specifically today. In fact, here is last week's take-home truth from our understanding of gospel content. In fact, would you, would you read this with me? The most important, life-giving, life-saving reality in the history of the world is the content of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he did. Notice the words content and reality. It's factual, historical, evidential it's a body of truth you can believe. And that's where we come into this idea of gospel contact. What do we do in response to this content? Here's what you'll see today. Here's our take-home truth in advance. I'll ask you to read this with me as well, would you? Here's today's take-home truth. The most important, life-giving, life-saving relationship in the history of the world comes from contact with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he did. So we're saying that there is a real body of truth that you come in contact with, and when you, do, when you do, that gives you a relationship with God. There's content and there's contact. These are the primary concepts and principles in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Let me read that for you. Follow along with me. Here's what the Bible would say to us, and we'll talk more about contact. Paul said in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or have passed away. 
Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Would you notice with me all the words in these 11 verses that point to the idea of gospel contact? You have a pen handy just in your Bible there or maybe your journal and some notes. Just write these down, circle these. This is very intriguing. These are sensory words. They indicate seeing and touching and feeling and hearing. They indicate interaction with a relationship. Notice the word preach mentioned three times, verse 1, verse 2, and 11. It's an audible situation here. You see the word received. It's mentioned twice, verse 1 and verse 3. So you're, you're, you're accepting. There's something tangible and real that you are uh, grasping. You see the word stand in verse 1. It's a pretty strong word here. I'll explain more in a moment, but it's it means to, to set your feet on, to be in place. The words being saved in verse 2, this ongoing posture that's real in your life because you believe. You see the words holding fast in verse 2, clinging and, and clutching and grasping. You see believed in verse 2. You see believed in verse 11. The word appeared is used four times between verses 5 and 8. That's no doubt a contact word. It's seeing something uh, in real life. And so all of those words, plus all the contact ambiance between verses 9 and 11, really that's centered around the idea of God's grace being with Paul. You might circle the word with. When you look at all of these words, you, you begin to see there's a load of sensory contact language in these 11 verses. Now, as we dig a little deeper, let me share some helpful insight about six of these words. Because while that's a load of sensory language showing us that something happens to this content, we have contact with it, there are six that are especially helpful in understanding what gospel contact is. The first two would be the verbs received and believed. They're both used twice. Now, let me be nerdy with you for a minute, Okay. Uh, These words, these verbs are just in a simple past tense. It's referring to action that has taken place at a point in time in the past. They received it. They believed it. Then Paul uses the verb stand. Now it's a future tense verb. Now in the Greek language, future tense does not mean it's something yet to happen Future tense refers to still an action in the past, but it has ongoing effects into the future, thus future tense. So you have simple past action verbs combined with a future tense, something that occurred in the past but has ongoing effects. And then you see the words being saved. This is a a present tense verb. So something is ongoing. This is posture. There's this effect that is occurring because of our belief. So do you see what, what Paul says about gospel contact? Listen very carefully. It has a beginning point, a continuing posture, 
and a lasting effect. I love the way the author here uses the tenses of these verbs to help us kind of get our hands around what it means to come in contact with this all-important, of first importance, content. So this is essentially how you know you've had contact with the content. There is a point in time, there is a posture of continuing, and there are produced effects. You stand fast. And we can look to these as proof that we've come in contact with this all-important content. Now, just a warning, I'll be using the words contact and content a lot today. So prepare yourself, because I do believe this text is of first importance. This matters greatly. So to reinforce what we're seeing here in these verses, with all the sensory interactive language, as well as these six verbs especially, here's what we see about the content and our contact with it. Ready? We receive and believe it. We stand on it. We are being saved by it. And we're holding fast to it. Straight from the text. Now, all of this is done, of course, in real time and space. This is not some out-of-body experience. Paul here is writing to these believers in actual historical context and saying, here's what occurred in and through Jesus. Here's the content. And so now you in real time and space must believe, accept, receive in real time and space as well. It's a tangible, personal embrace of the content at a point in time. And you continue, we continue to put our confidence in that from that point on. Again, we come in contact with the content and we stand on it initially and continually. Now, I say all of that with urgent plainness of speech in order to assure you and convince you that there is content, specific content, one must come in contact with to be saved and to grow deeper in that salvation or, as the text says, to be being saved. There's actual real truth one must receive and believe to begin a relationship with God and to continue a relationship with God. And that truth, in a word, is the gospel. We must have and keep gospel contact with gospel content. Here's that truth, that Jesus is God's son who alone lived, died, and rose again for our salvation. That is what is of first importance. Say, Todd, why walk us through that school-type lesson? I've often heard people say this to me. Well, I've just always been a Christian. Or, you know, Todd, I've just always believed. So on the authority of the word of God, I want to pastorally and politely say to you, that's actually biblically impossible. You can't just always believe. There is a point in time in which you come in contact with content and you either accept or reject. You take your stand or you don't stand on it. You believe it or you don't. You receive it or you don't. So at this point, you may be feeling a little tense, thinking, I think I've said that. Well, welcome to the best news you could hear today. Because what I'm about to share with you regarding gospel contact is of first importance. 
You see, there's a point in time at which we are spiritually born. Just like no one can say, well, well, I've always been alive. No, you haven't. You were born at a given point in time, and then you grew. And spiritually speaking, we come in contact with the content of the gospel, and when we believe it, we are saved. We're born again, and as we grow, we continue to believe it. We hold fast to that very same content, and it's proof that we genuinely believed the very first time. So allow me this Easter to show you a snapshot of gospel contact, what it looks like from the Bible. I'll show you a couple, actually, but I want to show you one mainly, and it's the life of John. It's just a a quick view into one part of his life that will show you how gospel contact works in your life. It's found in John 20. It's the story of the resurrection. How fitting for today, right? And we're going to see how the resurrection really was a key factor in John taking his stand on the gospel and continuing to believe. Here's the story in John 20. It's the first 10 verses. Uh, I'll just simply tell you the story and I'll pick it up in verse 6. But the ladies went to the tomb first. They found it was empty. They come back and tell the disciples, hey, his body's not there. So John and Peter are the first out the door. The Bible says John's the fastest of the two. He gets to the tomb first, but... He doesn't go in, he just kind of glances. But Peter, of course, he gets there just a few minutes later, apparently, and he just barges right in. Let's pick it up now in verse 6. It says that Peter saw the linen cloths lying there. Notice how the author here, John, is going to describe the orderly arrangement, indicating there's there's not been a ransacking of the tomb. There's not been a stealing of the body. There's been a supernatural resurrection. He says that, The linen cloths were lying there. The face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, it was not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So this is what Peter saw. John saw this as well. And verse 8 says, Then the other disciple, John, of course, who had reached the tomb first, he went in and he saw and believed. And those are contact words, aren't they? I mean, that's interaction. John saw the empty tomb, the orderly arrangement, the clear indication Christ is alive and not dead, and he believed. What did he believe? He believed that what Christ had said earlier, that he would rise from the dead, that he actually did. See the rest of verse 9? For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead, but now they do. And of course, then the disciples, verse 10 says, went back to their homes. Now, I don't think this is when John first came to belief. But I do believe it is a continuing point of belief for him. In fact, I believe verse 8 is probably the the real climax of this narrative segment. It's the author trying to show how the gospel, and in this case, it was the gospel front and center, live and in person, wasn't it? The actual tomb. No Jesus there. The resurrection. John saw it firsthand, and it deepened his belief. It settled his posture. The resurrection was instrumental in John's faith development. It was the proof for his continued belief. It was the evidence he needed to keep taking his stand for greater understanding. So to all my believing friends here this morning, let us see the empty tomb and continue to hold fast and stand strong. Amen? You are not believing a lie or a myth. You are believing firsthand accounts of the supernatural resurrection of the Son of God. So let us see and believe yet again, not to salvation, but to continuing to believe and hold fast and stand strong. 
Now, maybe you're wondering, well, Todd, if that's not the first time he believed, and yet it uses the word believe, when did John actually first believe? That's a good question. And we can have different opinions here. I think it was probably around John 16, which is in the last week of Christ's life. I tend to think most of the disciples were following Jesus as a disciple would a rabbi. They were intrigued, and they believed aspects about Jesus. But if you read John 16, you'll find that John, and I think many of the other ones, at this point began to believe in the authority of Jesus, which means they begin to believe who he was, where he's from, from God, and what he would do. They begin to believe the identity and work of Jesus. I personally believe that's probably when they, we can use our terminology, came to faith. Now, some would say perhaps it's John 12, maybe John 11. You know, no problem. We can differ on that. Amen? But as I read the scriptures and follow the, the course of this word believe, which, by the way, it's used 85 times in the book of John. It's the key word of the book. When I follow the course of that word and, and the interaction of Christ with these men, it seems that John 16, a corner is turned. And they no longer are just believing aspects. They're not just watching as a casual, curious observer like, hey, this is an intriguing man. He's making some incredible claims. They are now all in. They're receiving and embracing and believing what Jesus has said and what he will do. And so we come to chapter 20 where John gets to the empty tomb. He sees it. He knows exactly what has happened. Christ has raised from the dead. God did what he promised. Jesus was the Christ, and now John's feet are now more firmly planted on this good news. His stance is on the gospel, and it would continue and be more concretely settled. You see, John here, I think, is continuing to believe what he, at an earlier specific point in time, began to believe. And are you seeing how gospel contact works? The gospel content is always involved whether it's bringing us to Christ at a point in time or deepening our posture at points in time and producing the effective results, the gospel is always a part of that process, which is why I say to our church regularly, I say this to you, we say it together, let us celebrate the gospel weekly. We want contact with that content. Now, amazingly, the book of John is filled with examples just like this. I mentioned to you that the key word is the word believe, and it chronicles just a number of people who had an initial point of belief and who had continuing points of belief and growth where they uh, took their stand and held fast. Some of those were like Peter, Andrew, Mary, Martha. One of my favorites, though, is Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus is only mentioned three times in the whole book. Here's his story briefly. Notice how his belief is, again, connected with uh, the content of the gospel. In John 3, he makes a secret appointment to see Jesus. And Jesus tells him in very explicit terms that you must be born again. I tend to think Nicodemus thought he was bringing some type of resume to Jesus. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader. He had a stack of good works. By the way, he beat you and me hands down. 
But Jesus seemed to say, none of those matter, Nicodemus. Here's what's of first importance. You must be born again, a point in time beginning of a spiritual heavenly relationship with God. He said also the Son of Man must be lifted up, speaking of the crucifixion. I mean, he said this to Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, unless you're born again by the Spirit of God, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus hears this. He leaves. He's processing it, mulling it over. We get to the second time he's mentioned in chapter 7. And there's a discussion among the rulers and the Pharisees. And, of course, he's one of those. And they're debating what to do with Jesus and how to interact with some folks who are are claiming things about him, and, and they're not sure who's with him and who's not with him. You should read John 7. It's a quite intriguing chapter. And Nicodemus does not come out and necessarily defend Jesus, but he doesn't join the crowd of those who are saying that this man's just a bad guy. He kind of asks a few questions. You can tell that he's wanting to cross the line, but he's still somewhat hesitant. You can see movement. By the time you get to John 19, though, he's a full-faithed follower. How do we know that? Because he was one of two people who asked for the body of Jesus. Nicodemus and Joseph, John 19, went to the rulers and said, give us the body of Jesus, we'll bury it. You don't do that in that day and age unless you are willing to come out and be public with your faith. Here's what I think happened. This is just conjecture. The Bible doesn't say explicitly, but my opinion is that probably Nicodemus is watching the crucifixion, maybe from a distance. And he sees the gospel personified in living color, can we say? At some point on the front end of Passion Week, Nicodemus realizes he's the son of God and he believes. This is John 19. And so he goes and he says, give us the body of Jesus will bury it. You see, he had contact with the content and the opportunity to bury the body of Jesus was simply his opportunity to go public, to believe and confess Jesus before others. So I personally believe that Nicodemus was one of the first Passion Week converts. So do you see that in both the life of John and the life of Nicodemus, both in their growth, whether it was the initial moment or the continuing moments, there was contact with the content of the gospel. This is what Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians 15. Back to our main text. Paul's describing in principle what we saw happen um, and displayed in history with John and Nicodemus and others. Paul here simply is declaring. He's explaining what what we saw in example. And so the same holds true for us. To have salvation, you must have contact with specific content. What is that content? It's the content of the gospel that Jesus Christ alone lived, died, and rose again for your salvation. And contact with that, receiving, believing, accepting, and holding fast to it is what being saved is all about. Now, here's why I love contact and content because it gives us context for what we should do. In other words, 
These two principles, gospel content and gospel contact, they provide a framework for how to live in response to it, like what we're to do next. Now, now let me illustrate. I'll be very plain here. When a married couple says to one another, let's have a baby, they don't just sit around and wait for something mystical to happen. She doesn't say, I've always been pregnant. He doesn't say, I've always been a parent. No, quite the contrary. There is, now watch me, there is contact with content. They accept real truth and they take real action. I'll leave it there. Now, admittedly, there's a lot that we don't know about conception, but there is a lot that we do know about conception, right, church? And so that married couple, to have a baby, based on what they do understand, that's content, they take action, that's contact. And through God's divine design, a baby is born. Now, mind you, people eventually know that contact and content merged. They even put a date on it. It's called your birthday. That's right. It's proof that content and contact merged, right? And here's what's beautiful about birthdays. Every single birthday you celebrate is an opportunity to remember and rejoice when your physical life started. It's, a, it's proof that at a point in time you came into being. Now, to be quite technical, it occurred about nine months before you became visible. But here's the point. Your birthday is just an annual day to let the truth of procreation sink deeper and deeper. You're seeing your skin, your flesh, your breathing. You're like, I'm alive. That started at some point. I'm still living. I'm still breathing. Love my birthday, right? Listen, church, the same thing is true spiritually. We have an initial moment of spiritual birth through gospel contact with gospel content. Have you? If so, when? Now, I want to be pastorally gentle here, but I also want to be pastorally courageous. I don't think you have to have a specific date. I do think, and I think I can take you to Scripture and show you the weight of the testimony of Scripture is that those who believe in Jesus, they know that it happened, and they remember, generally speaking, when it happened. In fact, in my experience at 35 years of preaching, I've learned this, and this helps me just in talking to people, that usually when someone can't articulate some type of when, they're pretty foggy on the what as well. I've had hundreds of conversations with people. They're like, well, I think I've always believed. I've just always been a Christian. Oh, well, what, what do you as a Christian believe? Well, you know, I'm just, I'm just uh, doing my best. I believe in God. Well, I wouldn't say those are bad ideas, but that's not what saves people. Paul said what saves someone is actual belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I've just discovered, and this is just informal research, okay, that typically where there's a cloudiness with the when, there's usually a mist about the what, which says to me something. 
if you really don't know when you took your stand on the gospel, like even in general terms, like I was young, I was a child, I was, I was in college, uh, you know, I was going through a crisis. Some of you may know specific times, but if you, can't, if you can't even fathom a season in which God moved in and changed your life, a point in time that resulted in a posture change and lasting effects, past tense, future tense, and then, of course, present tense. If those things can't in some way be put into the timeline of your life, I would ask you politely but courageously, have you actually come in contact with the gospel? And if you haven't, you're not born again. You're not a Christian. You're not saved. You may be close. You may be curious. You may be morally upright. You may be good. You may be benefiting from all the things that this church that you go to provides and offers. You may be experiencing a lot of the windfall of Christians around you. But if you have not crossed the line from close to actually contact, if you haven't embraced and put your faith and trust in the news about who Christ is and what he did, you are not a Christian. I would invite you today to leave the realm of closeness and join the ranks of those who have made contact with the gospel and embrace it, receive it, accept it, take your stand on it, hold to it. By this, you are being saved. And in a day and a culture of muddy and foggy type of theology, isn't it delightful to have such concrete wisdom from God? This is what is of first importance, church, to know that you belong to God and have a relationship with him through the reality of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. I was talking to a lady just two weeks ago right here. She may be in this service. We had a great conversation. She was asking some questions about a certain orthodox religion and how works played into that and how it compared to Christianity. And so she was explaining what she thought the Bible was teaching, and she was spot on. But I wasn't sure if her questions were aimed to find out what we believed or to express what she believed. And so in, in the course of just talking about, you know, do works produce salvation or does salvation produce works? You know, how are we really saved? I just said to her, I said, hey, you know, um, can I just ask you, has there been a time when you took your stand on this truth that our works don't save us, but only the work of Jesus alone through his death and resurrection? That's what saves us. Have you taken your stand on that truth and have a relationship with God through that. And she said, oh, you bet, last October. She just blurted out her spiritual birthday, you know? She continued by saying this, I feel like I got a new life and finally started living. You see, I'm just convinced, and I hope you hear this well, I'm just convinced that coming to Christ, making contact with the gospel's content is so life-altering and life-changing and life-rescuing that you just don't forget it. It's like asking me, are you married? I wouldn't say, I think so. Like, I know <laughs> I got married. You with me? And I haven't always been married either. I wasn't born married. There was a point in time when something dramatic happened in my life. And the same thing is true about coming to Christ. And I think sometimes in churches and in conversations, we want so, so much to be liked 
or, or to be pleasing. And my, my sense here is not to be unliked or displeasing, but we sometimes just get a little foggy. And can we just bring great clarity that contact with the gospel content is critical. You can be close, but not in. You can be curious, but not a believer. And I'm asking this morning, would you come in contact with the gospel content, leaving the curious and just leaving the, the other areas of like being close and saying, I am all in. I will embrace it, receive it, and take my stand on it. That's what you saw in baptisms this morning. You saw people testifying to the moment they came in contact with the gospel. And it wasn't at this point. This isn't a profession of what happened earlier. We'll baptize again in May. And there are folks in this service, I'm confident, who will look back to this very moment, Easter 22, and say, that was the day I heard the content and took my stand on it. I made contact with the all-important content, and God saved me. It may be someone in this room who's a teenager, elementary kid, an adult, a parent, maybe an empty nester, and you actually know a good bit about church. You may have years in church, but you've never believed, received, embraced the gospel as your only way to be saved. You're still thinking you can use a resume in your pocket to impress God, and none of that works. Only Jesus' work works. So church... This is why we proclaim this week and every week this beautiful truth. Will you say it again with me? We began with it. Let's end with it, can we? The most important, life-giving, life-saving relationship in the history of the world comes from contact with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he did. And what did he do? He came, he lived, he died, and most assuredly, he rose again. Hallelujah. Amen, church. Have you taken your stand on that? Have you made contact with that content? Have you simply said, yes, Lord, I believe? If you haven't, may the resurrection be the final piece of evidence that brings you to initially believe, to accept, embrace, to take your stand on the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus did so that you can receive the gift of salvation, a relationship with God through the forgiveness of your sins. In fact, it would sound something like this in this very moment. If you're sitting in that chair and you're thinking, Todd, that's me. I've been close. I've been curious, but I've never come in contact with this content in a way that I own it, like I embrace it and take my stand on it. But this morning, I'm, I'm ready, I'm willing. If that's actually what it takes to become a Christian, I'll take the step this morning. A prayer of that commitment would sound something like this. Lord, I've not yet believed. I've been close, I've been curious, I've been moral, but I've not yet put faith in you as the only way to be saved. So God, I turn from unbelieving and I trust in you alone as the only way to be saved. I believe Jesus was your son who lived, died, and rose again as the only way to be saved. And God, would you through Jesus save me right now? You know what God will do? He'll save you. And this morning, you'll be born again 
And Easter 22 will be your spiritual birthday. If you've already believed, are you continuing to stand on this? Are you continuing to believe in this truth? You see, often we sometimes fail to realize as believers, Easter is a, is a super time just to make sure that our feet are settled once again in the reality of the resurrection. And so we hold fast. We don't quit. We endure. We grow deeper and more solid the closer we stay to the gospel. So never stray from the essential and evidential truth of the gospel of Christ. Those things which Passion Week exhibits so clearly that Jesus lived died and rose again. May it be the confirming proof that undergirds our continuing belief. Oh, church, this is what is of first importance. Gospel content and gospel contact. Paul wrote, I want to remind you of it. It matters. And so in the words of 1 Corinthians 15, 11, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. May it be so in an ever-increasing fashion. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, I'm convicted by the clarity of your word. I'm convicted because I, I don't want to ever cloud its clarity. I don't want to ever come close to being a fog in the pulpit, for when we do, there'll be a mist in the chair for sure. And God, I pray that today on this Easter Sunday, 2022, Lord, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would have opened eyes and would have drawn people to the Christ who is the Messiah, the Savior, who lived and died, was buried and rose again in time and space as the Son of God for the forgiveness of all who believe, this forgiveness of the sins of all who believe. God, would you draw people to that content and cause them by your power and grace to embrace it, to believe it, to receive it, to take their stand on it, and to be saved by it. For all those who are believers, God, would you cause them on this Easter to say what John said, even though he was already a believer as well. They saw the tomb and they believed. God, I pray you will settle our feet even more solidly on the truth, the real, actual, factual truth of your life, death, and resurrection so that we hold fast to that which is of first importance. Oh God, bring people to life this morning. Move them from the circle of the close or the curious into the realm of contact. Save people this morning, God. And settle your family more solidly. And this we pray in the blessed name of our only Savior, Jesus, and all of God's people pray together. Amen.